0: Hey everyone, before we get started today, Cole and I are thrilled to announce a new opportunity for the core console RX listeners to claim ACPE accredited continuing education for this particular episode. We have partnered with FarmCon Free CE to provide listeners with the opportunity to claim your credit at freece.com, which will be linked in the podcast notes. You'll earn one hour of home study continuing education credits for this particular episode. For those of you who are already Free CE members, this service is included in your membership benefits at no additional cost. Simply follow the provided link, or you can visit the new podcast header on the FreeCE.com's website to take the post-test and evaluation for this activity. To unlock the post-test for this episode, listeners will enter the password, which will be cholesterol, C-H-O-L-E-S-T-E-R-O-L, in all capital letters. If you are not currently a free CE member, we invite you to explore all of the benefits of their unlimited membership on their website and use this as an opportunity to start banking credits for your favorite podcast episodes today. For a limited time, Core Console RX listeners can receive 15% off the purchase of an unlimited membership. All you have to do is enter the discount code CoreConRX at checkout, that's C-O-R-C-O-N-R-X, At the checkout, you'll get 15% off the membership and have access to all of their great content. I hope you guys like it. Thank you all so much for listening. And now, cue the music. What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult Rx podcast, but this isn't just any episode, is it Cole? It is not. It's a very unique episode because we have actually partnered up with FreeCE from FreeCE.com that I'm sure all of you are familiar with. Uh, they are uh, by FarmCon. If you haven't checked out FreeCE, you definitely need to because it's a great way of getting all your continuing uh, material that you need. Except now, instead of just live and then monographs, we have a new option
1: for learning. And you're listening to it right now. You are. So if you if, if you haven't dawned on, this has not dawned on you yet, you can do what you always do, listen to us, so we are already making your lives better, but then you can get continuing education credit for it.
0: Absolutely. and this is fantastic. So for all of our pharmacist listeners and all of our nurse listeners as well, this is going to be an episode that if you listen to it and you like it and you feel like you learned something, you can go and take a test. We're going to talk, we're going to have a link in the show notes. You can go take a few questions. Should do just fine as long as you pay attention during the podcast and you'll get actual credit for it uh, that counts towards your continuing education needs for the year. And uh, yeah, I'm going to give this a shot and see if you guys like it. I'm excited this is I am great too for sure I mean it's a topic that I, that I like a lot as well and uh, yeah let's get started
1: yeah yeah I, pr- I prefer this I prefer to be able to listen to my information and then also be able to get credit for it yeah it's great
0: I don't know if we can get credit for it can we
1: uh, hard to say good question yeah
0: I'll have to double check the rules on that one yeah but uh, yeah for the rest of you definitely can get credit. Um, so we're going to be talking about dyslipidemia and, and really in particular kind of diving into the the guidelines that are kind of centered around dealing with patients, um, you know, statin therapy and reduction of cardiovascular risk and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, and it's been a couple of years now since the updated guideline, but there is a, a most updated ACC/AHA guideline from 2018, which was the updated version from 2013 that we'll be going over. In more depth yeah definitely doing a deep dive
0: and and we'll, we'll mention to the the 2020 ACE guidelines as well yep. um, just so that we're you know for being thorough's sake but um, we're gonna spend more of our time talking about the uh, AHA um, guidelines like Cole was saying because so, we like that one yeah it's a good one but we'll explain why as we go through so it's not just uh, like we're picking and choosing based on our own opinion all right I guess we kind of are but that's what we do. You'll, you'll see it the opinion makes sense so lipids and in particular our, our LDL our bad cholesterol if you will um, you know the big question is who cares if our LDL is elevated um, what difference does that make you know long term and really it's there's multiple things that can kind of affect what we refer to as atherosclerosis right so um, things like um, smoking or uh, high um, concentration of visceral fat um, hypertension um, patients that have of, you know infections or their blood sugars not uh, under control so those can all lead to inflammation and when you have inflammation and you add on um, dyslipidemia to that you start getting this atherosclerotic plaque kind of buildup um, and that's what really puts you, the patient at risk for cardiovascular events later on down the road um, you know whether it's an mi or a stroke or increasing the risk of peripheral arterial disease things like that um, we want to avoid those types of um, events and so we, we want to make sure that we control the patient's um, lipids accordingly. Right,
1: and the process of that happening is is a little more than just LDL floating around in your bloodstream and sticking to your blood vessel walls. Um, so, as far as just a little bit of patho about that, LDL um, is the one we're worried about. Right, lousy density lipoprotein. That's how I was taught to remember it. Um, <laughs> but it becomes oxidized. It becomes oxidized into what's called ox LDL um, due to various inflammatory processes. And what happens is monocytes invade the intima where they become macrophages and engulf that ox LDL. So these macrophages are going to become filled with lipid particles and they'll become foam cells, which you've probably heard of foam cells from school. They accumulate in that intima, secrete pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, causing recruitment of more immune cells. So it just causes this bunch of immune cells the immune cells are trying to help but they're really just sticking together and creating this lump Um, cytokines are released from immune cells they cause smooth muscle migration from the media to the intima, and these activated smooth muscle cells secrete uh, extracellular matrix components that causes the arteries to thicken and harden so that's the process in which LDL causes these plaque uh, these fatty streaks in this plaque and then also causes thickening and hardening of the arteries
0: so to avoid this process from happening, uh, the first thing that the guidelines kind of touch on is lifestyle management. So that's especially, you know, us as pharmacists especially, I feel like we automatically jump to which medications do I need to get this patient on? And we kind of forget about the whole lifestyle, healthy living, man, you know, lifestyle management type things. So the guidelines do touch on some some various foods that are important to kind of encourage patients to eat. Um, Obviously, having a balanced meal um, as far as fruits and vegetables, um, having a good supply of whole grains, um, low-fat poultry, fish is a good source of protein. Um, and then increasing, you know, intake of you know, nuts and legumes, um, but, but then lo- limiting our intake of simple sugars, so especially like liquid simple sugars like sodas and you know, ju- juices and things like that. Um, also limiting red meat um, as well, and so they, you notice they kind of stay away from some of the more beef and things like that, and they kind of go towards the chicken and fish. Um, and then they also talk about exercise. So the recommendation being moderate to vigorous aerobic activity, Um, roughly 40 minutes per workout Um, doing three to four workouts per week Um, so it's a little bit different like the ada guidelines for diabetes patients things like that but basically the the rule of thumb is we want them exercising Um, it doesn't have to be you know starting from zero to the the full recommendation you know baby steps are fine but getting the patient moving getting them active super important for their overall health
1: right any increase from baseline is positive though that 150 minutes of modern um, intensity or 75 minutes of vigorous intensity they consider the minimum physical activity requirements for like a healthy lifestyle so less than half of adults in the u.s are actually that active Truthfully, I'm surprised that the number is even close to half, but it's it's less than half. Um, and just to piggyback on the diet stuff a little bit, if you're looking at a label or you're counseling patients who are interested in looking at labels in depth, replacing saturated fats with moni and polyunsaturated poly fats can be beneficial. That's recommended. Um, just in general, reducing cholesterol and sodium intake for looking, looking for foods that um, are lower in those versus the foods that they regularly eat. Um, minimizing processed meats refined carbohydrates sweetened beverages that sort of thing Um, also as far as risk factors so with dyslipidemia um, it's lifestyle of course there's also uh, genetic components to it Um, there's modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors some modifiable ones we know of sedentary lifestyle right Um, obesity Diabetes, you might not consider that fully modifiable, but you can at least get it under control, right? Um, Tobacco use, definitely a modifiable risk factor. And then diet, of course. Um, Non-modifiable age. um, Males are at higher risk for dyslipidemia. um, And then family history, so that's where that genetic component comes in.
0: So once those kind of lifestyle management techniques have been addressed, then we got to look at the medications that we can potentially give patients to help them lower that risk of having a cardiovascular event down the road or um, a second event or whatever the case may be for that particular patient. And kind of the gold standard for dyslipidemia is going to be statin therapy. So if you haven't heard of a statin, that surprises us, but we're going to tell you all about them. So mechanistically, statins are there to inhibit the enzyme HMG-CoA reductase, so which is the enzyme that's kind of like the rate-limiting step um, involved in cholesterol synthesis. So when we kind of shut that enzyme off, uh, then we are limiting the amount of actual cholesterol synthesis that's taking place. Now statins are organized based on their ability to lower that LDL or that bad cholesterol. So typically, you'll see them referred to as high-intensity, moderate-intensity, and low-intensity. Uh, high-intensity is going to be um, roughly a greater 50% or greater uh, reduction in, in baseline LDL. Uh, moderate-intensity is usually 30 to 49%. And then low-intensity, we're thinking uh, less than 30%, so somewhere in that range. So those aren't exact measurements, but um, it, close enough.
1: And statins have an effect on triglycerides, um, also HDL. We want to increase HDL, but the focus is on LDL. And you'll hear um, in this guideline, or at least in in various different places, you'll hear kind of a discussion as to whether strict LDL lowering, I guess I shouldn't say strict, but strictly LDL lowering, um, if that's what's beneficial or if it's specifically lowering LDL with a statin. So there's some... Um, who think, that I think they call it the statin hypothesis, um, where they they think that lowering LDL with a statin does more than just decreasing LDL with other non-statin lipid-lowering therapies. Um, they call it a pleiotropic effect, that the, the cardiovascular outcomes that we see from statins are because they're statins and they lower lipids, whereas if we had the similar lipid-lowering with a non-statin medication, we might not see that benefit. Um, so I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger right there because there's a couple trials we'll go through that... Um, kind of give you, uh, an idea one way or the other, but it's, it's still a discussion it still hasn't really been sussed
0: out, I guess you'd say. So people were like just in the process of debating whether they're going to keep listening and you hit them with that. They have now to like, Now they have to listen. It's a solid technique. I like it. Um, if you're looking at the guidelines, there's a table in there that actually talks about the intensity of the statins, um, uh, and just kind of shows like the 50%, 30, 49, et cetera. Uh, and has different statins listed, um, in the different groups you'll notice that some of them are bold font and some of them are not. Um, it, basically, the reason for that is the ones that are uh, bold are statins that have been um, done or used in clinical trials that have outcome data. So we know that these are going to all lower LDL, you know, raise HDL, lower triglycerides potentially, but... It, so what if the person ends up having a cardiovascular event down the road? So ideally, and this should be the case with all of our you know, medications, whether it's blood pressure, diabetes, whatever, but we want to use medications that have actually been proven to reduce the risks of having some sort of an event years down the road. So the ones like a torvastatin, 40 milligrams, 80 milligrams, those are in bold. And actually 40 milligrams, I'll just say this, has a little kind of caveat next to it where um, it's actually only been looked at in one study. And I think it was the ideal trial, if I remember correctly. Um, But the ideal trial had 40 milligrams as an option if they couldn't tolerate 80 milligrams. So the majority of our data with the torvastatin comes from the eighty milligram strength. Um, with rosuvastatin, we've seen uh, with outcome data with Jupiter trial, um, and then various other uh, studies with moderate intensity, so like a torva ten. But then twenty milligrams is not bold because we haven't done outcome data with, with that particular strength. Um, the other thing that you may notice if you're looking at this table is that simvastatin 80 milligrams seems to be missing from said table. Hmm, but wait a minute, Mike. I yep. definitely have filled simvastatin 80 milligrams before. So that's the thing is 80 milligrams has been around for a long time. It's still available in the market, unfortunately. Um, but there was a study done, and it was actually surprisingly done all the way back in 2011. So I'm surprised that even still simvastatin 80 is still kind of floating around 10 years later. But, I was in high school. You were? Mm. That's good. (laughs) I think I was starting pharmacy school. (laughs) Um, But uh, there was a study called the SEARCH trial, and what they did is they compared simvastatin 80 milligrams to simvastatin 20 milligrams. Uh, What they were basically looking for was um, major vascular events to see if the 80 milligrams obviously lowered those events uh, more than the 20. There at the end of the study, no difference um, in outcomes, no difference in death due to vascular causes or non-vascular causes, Um, and in fact, numerically, from the as far as the major vascular events, simvastatin 20 actually uh, was, I mean, just barely more prevalent than um, the simvastatin 80 to the point where it wasn't statistically significant. Right, no difference. Adverse effect wise, though, uh, definitely significantly different. So there was um, multiple patients, uh, 53 patients that had myopathies um, in the 80 milligram group, which is only like two in the 20 milligram. Um, And then they actually had patients, uh, seven of which actually reached the status of like having true rhabdomyolysis, um, none of them in the 20 milligram group. So the FDA has basically recommended that we no longer initiate anybody on 80-milligram Simvastatin. Now, they do say if a patient's been on simva 80 and kind of been established and they're not having any issues, then you could keep them on that. However, I would encourage you to switch them to a more evidence-based statin, but that's
1: just my opinion. We like being evidence-based. Yeah. Yeah, as long, long as we're on that, I'll go through some um, of the differences between the high, moderate, and low intensities. So we only have two high intensity statins atorvastatin and rosuvastatin um they can also be moderate intensity like mike mentioned at different doses Um, but the high intensity doses of atorvastatin are 40 and 80 rosuvastatin 20 and 40. simvastatin can be moderate or low lovastatin can be moderate fluvastatin patavastatin can be moderate and then lower doses of those can be low um there's not too much of a reason to use a low-intensity statin. I guess possibly if a patient is having trouble tolerating, yes. But in general, as far as initiating therapy on a regular patient, not really a reason to use low-intensity doses. Um, there are reasons to use moderate. There's reasons to use high. In my general opinion, I like atorvastatin or rosuvastatin, even if you're starting them at a moderate-intensity dose, which we'll talk about whether it, or not it's best to do that. But if you're going to, um, you can always bump them up to a high-intensity dose without having to switch medications. Now as far as the side effects go, um, so what Mike was talking about with the side effects of simvastatin, myalgias are going to be the most common side effect. It's probably going to be the most common side effect that patients have heard of as well. Um, So they might come into this conversation with a preconceived notion about what kind of side effects they may or may not have. They may have concerns. Um, Higher intensity does not indicate higher side effects necessarily, right? Simvastatin 80 milligrams is not considered a high intensity statin. The intensity only refers to the amount of lipid lowering that you get from the medication. Um, So a moderate intensity, you're going to get that 30 to 49. High intensity, you get greater than 50%. Um, What really determines whether a patient is going to have that myalgia side effect or not, it seems to have to do with um, some, some pharmacokinetic properties of the medications themselves. So some of the statins are more what we call lipophilic. Um, and some are more hydrophilic. So we think that the more lipophilic statins um, disperse more readily into smooth muscle and into the fat and go places where they don't need to go that will concentrate in those areas and settle, and they can cause more myalgia side effects, whereas the hydrophilic ones don't. Um, So if you have a patient who's having that issue, it could be reasonable to switch them to a hydrophilic statin, and they might do better. Um, But yeah, I kind of feel like the people who named the high-intensity and moderate-intensity have chosen a less like intense yeah name for Mm -hmm. lack of a better word right
0: nomenclature
1: no like i would have said high i wouldn't probably wouldn't even said high but if i had to have high in there i'd say high lipid lowering statins (laughs) there perfect rolls off the tongue right? high lipid lowering because when the patients hear intensity or even when a provider i'll say provider because that's probably who hears this this terminology more often when a provider hears intensity they think Oh, if this patient's having side effects, I definitely don't want to increase them to a high intensity statin because they're just gonna have more side effects. But that's not necessarily the case, right? Yeah.
0: And kind of like, and I'll kind of piggyback off of that for a second. One other strategy and that you can do is besides you know switching to a hydrophilic statin, which definitely is a very good option, um, another thing you could potentially do would be To there's been cases where they can go every other day, potentially, if you have a patient who just like absolutely insistent that they're having these, these myopathies, these myalgias, um, you could go every other day. Now we don't have good outcome data in that type of dosing. Um, I've even seen a couple studies that were very, very small and they were strictly looking at the LDL lowering aspects. They weren't looking at outcomes, but I've even seen a couple that used rosuvastatin like once a week and still had a little bit of LDL lowering from it. So there's a few options there. And I will say too, if you kind of follow the way the clinical trials were done and you start the highest dose high intensity statin for patients who need to be on that Um, I I do feel like and this is my anecdotal experience but I feel like when I tell a patient okay I'm gonna get you on this medication they come back and they're like having uh, you know cramping and all that stuff Um, okay well I'm gonna cut your dose in half now and bring it back down to you know instead of 80 milligrams of a I'm going to do 40 milligrams that seems to be a little bit better as far as they the way that they they take that information versus if they you put them on 40 to start and they come back they're not having any problems and you go great i'm glad you're doing well let's double your dose now to get the most, effect. that's going to be a harder sell. At least again, that's totally my opinion, but um, I just feel like that's a little bit easier. Plus if you start at the higher intensity, you're doing like what the clinical trials typically right. shoot for anyway. Because
1: a lot of times, especially if a patient's hesitant to start a medication, they are going to ask, is this the lowest dose? Right. Mm-hmm. So they, they do want to hear that this is the lowest dose, but if yeah, you, you would want to present some data, like the TNT trial, comparing a 80 to 20, um, and 10. talking to uh, a 80 to 10 and talking about better outcomes. Um, But I guess I should tell you which statins are lipophilic and which ones are are hydrophilic. So um, lipophilic statins would be more like atorvastatin, lovastatin, simvastatin. More hydrophilic statins would be rosuvastatin, pravastatin, fluvastatin. So if we see we're looking at the high intensity group, we have atorvastatin, which is more lipophilic and rosuvastatin, which is more hydrophilic. So you don't necessarily have to sacrifice intensity to switch somebody to a more hydrophilic version so if, if they're having issues with torva maybe switch them to resuvastatin and they might have better outcomes or like mike said the atypical dosing i've actually seen that a lot mm-hmm. um which goes more towards the idea that we just want somebody to be on a statin to get some lipid lowering because we know we're going to see benefit from that and possible pleiotropic effect which halfway spoiler we're, that's that idea has fallen a little more out of favor um, but we at least want to get some lipid lowering with a quality medication that we know can lower it really well
0: so let's say that uh, we start a statin and we don't get to where we want to be as far as you know maybe ldl goal or whatever the case may be uh, with the statin alone um, again the next kind of way that we need to be looking at things is what else can we add on to that 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 is evidence-based that has outcome data associated with it and the there's not a ton out there that of you know not a ton of options out there that that have a lot of outcome data so that's one of the reasons when i mentioned that i like the the AHA, um, aha guidelines for lipid lowering a little bit better than like the ace guidelines it's because they both start with statin therapy except the aha kind of digs in more to Kind of going down the list first of the medications that have uh, true like outcome data associated with it before they branch off into the, some of the other um, other classes that don't necessarily have the same outcome data. So the first one we'll talk about is ezetimibe. You know, brand name is Zetia, and this is a medication that is basically going to inhibit the absorption of cholesterol at the brush border of the small intestine. Um, the, this kind of is the medication got its notoriety because of a study called improve it um where they were looking at simvastatin 40 compared to simvastatin 40 plus azetamide. um and the primary outcome was just a composite of of uh more CV mortality or um cv events or non fatal stroke um what they found is that it, it, originally i think the study was 5 years and then they extended it to 7 um and they finally got to where you you reach statistical difference um the number needed to treat was 50 so for every 50 people that you treat um, and add azetimibe to the regimen over the course of seven years, then you prevent one of those outcomes from the primary composite. Um, that being said, uh, we don't really have great data on adding azetimibe to a high-intensity statin, so we are kind of extrapolating the data from this older study to, you know, our newer statins that we use more prevalently than now. Um, but that, that being said too, it's, we're at least trying to be evidence-based about this. So we're using what the best data that we have um, as opposed to just picking things at random.
1: Right, and this is important because azetamib is not a super new drug. Mm-hmm. Some people would consider it new versus a lot of the other statins, um, but it's been around for a little while. Uh, and it was not included in a similar way in the 2013 ACCHA guideline, but they do include it in this one because of this Improve It trial from 2015. And this trial is one of the big reasons why the... Um, statin hypothesis pleiotropic effect idea has fallen a little more out of favor because they saw that when you add ezetimibe non-statin lipid lowering therapy to simvastatin, and you know just get lipid lowering you're going to get improved outcomes um which you know, if you if you separated them out, there wasn't um, all cause or cardiovascular mortality benefit, but as a composite, there was benefit, and separately, there was MI and stroke benefit from from the combination of simvastatin and azetamide. But like Mike said, it wasn't added onto a high intensity, so it's a little bit of extrapolation, um, but it kind of lends credence a bit to the the idea that we just need to get the lipids down, and that's where we're going to see our benefit.
0: So another class that does have some outcome data associated with it is our PCSK9 inhibitors. So PCSK9 uh, is something that is um, there to kind of help if we block PCSK9 um, we're keeping that from binding to those LDL receptors and so we're allowing the increase in the clearance of those LDL receptors so um, instead of them being kind of sticking around longer um, we're increasing that clearance and so cholesterol goes down right. as a result. we
1: want the receptors to be available to grab on cholesterol right. remove it from the blood PCSK9 binds receptors so we're trying to get those off the receptors right
0: So there's been the two main drugs that we have, um, the brand brand names Pregulant and Repatha, um, they've both been studied. And just to give you an example, we won't go through all the different outcome data, but um, to use Repatha's data, just to give you an example, the four-year trial, um, they showed that when you add that on to a patient who's already taking higher, moderate intensity statin um, and their LDL is still above 70, um, then... You, you can de- decrease the risk of major cardiovascular events um, significantly if you add on that. Um, again, this was done in patients that already had clinical ASCVD, so this was more secondary outcome, or secondary prevention, rather. Uh, and so we, and we'll get into the, like, the LDL goals and stuff in a minute, uh, but this showed that uh, we can, in fact, a- have an add-on that does lower um, the, the risk of an event later on.
1: Yeah, and um, with only really what you might consider a modest 2% incidence of injection site reactions, otherwise not really no other adverse effects from these drugs, which is great, including nuanced diabetes or neurocognitive effects. So you might see, hear that kind of thrown around as a concern with lowering LDL too much or lowering LDL in elderly patients, um, and they did not see that in this trial. And you know there might be reasonable, um, I mean, there definitely needs to be more data as far as the new onset diabetes thing, but at least in this trial where they got the LDLs down extremely low, um, they didn't see an increased risk for side effects there. Yeah. And
0: as, as far if you are interested, we won't go into it much today, but if, if you are interested in learning more about like the diabetes, um, uh, occurrence happening or the risk of developing diabetes basically in patients from at least statin therapy because it does seem to be more mechanistically um, re- as a result of statin therapys you know mechanistically versus the just lowering of the LDL but we had uh, uh, an st- episode quite a while ago I think it was over a year ago now but we had a student on the podcast who had done a whole research project on that and really does a good job of explaining um, how that could potentially happen but yeah if you're interested in that go check that episode out. So to kind of get into the guidelines a little bit, and we'll, we'll talk through some other classes as we go, but the, since those are the three main groups that have evidence behind them, um, let's kind of look at the the way the guidelines break it down as far as who gets what drug. Um, and I, I really do like the way that they kind of separated and grouped the, mm-hmm. the patient populations. And I think it's kind of an important way of kind of keeping it straight in your own head too when you're, when you're delivering patient care. So they have four... St- basically management groups or statin groups, if you will. Um, Group number one is patients who are being treated with a statin for the sole purpose of preventing a second event. Mm -hmm. So these are patients that already have clinical ASCVD, um, whether that was they had acute coronary syndrome um, within the last 12 months, they have a history of MI, they have a history of an ischemic stroke, they have peripheral arterial disease, they had some sort of a major ASCVD event, um, and now we want to prevent another one of those events yep. um, and so there's them just having an event in the past obviously puts them at risk in and of itself. Um, there's also some high risk conditions that can even worsen their risk, um, which some things that some people can't control like age being 65 years of, uh, or older, um, if they had a cabbage or a PCI done, uh, if they have diabetes, if their LDL is above 100, uh, if they have uncontrolled hypertension, if they're a current smoker, if they have CKD, um, if they have familial hypercholesterolemia, those things are all high risk conditions that just increased the the risk of having that second event that much more.
1: Yep. And the, um, the guideline has a great algorithm to walk you through. I will say that it's, it's pretty easy with secondary prevention and we'll, and we'll walk you through it a little bit. But, um, if you're wondering and you're like, does this patient get a statin? Ooh, this patient's a little bit older. Would they qualify some good guidance here? Um, so they've had one of those events that Mike mentioned, they have clinical ASCVD, um, for secondary prevention. And before we get into that, did you want to mention the other three groups just to have mentioned them?
0: We'll, we'll, uh, we'll just go, let's just go one by one and okay. knock them out. And then we'll we'll summarize them at the
1: end. Is that sure. okay? So um, secondary prevention is the first, they've already had a clinical ASCVD events. Obviously we want to hit healthy lifestyle. You want to do that for everybody. Then they split them into these very high risk groups or not at very high risk group, which Mike mentioned a little bit Um if you're considered at very high risk, it might be because you have other conditions like you're over 65, you have diabetes, hypertension, Kirk smoker, like you said. Um, in that case, you've already had an event, you want a high-intensity statin. Easy peasy. The goal is to is to get you on a high-intensity or maximally tolerated statin if you're having side effects, have LDL lowering of at least 50%, um, and get you to a goal LDL. So they, they want you on the statin, and they want your LDL to be below 70 that's that's where the evidence is, that's where we get the most benefit as far as cardiovascular events. So if you're on this maximally tolerated stat and your LDL is still above 70, then you can add on azetimibe, which is why we mentioned that. So we have data from the IMPROVE-IT trial for that. Um, if you're considering a PCSK9 before that, they say you should definitely try azetimibe first and see if you can get it below 70 before considering a PCSK9. Okay. If you're on both of those, you're on maximally tolerated LDL lowering therapy, you're still above 70, that's when you would consider a PCSK9 just in general for regular secondary prevention.
0: And I think they, they do push that PCSK9 more to third line in this case, a lot of times because of the cost. Right. Um, so they do have a, a high price tag associated. With them. They've gotten a lot better, but still up there. right? And so that, that's wh- where they say it's reasonable at that point once you've optimized the statin and azetamide to maybe consider if you're still above 70.
1: Right. It's not about efficacy. It's about cost effectiveness, which you can get them paid for, for sure. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times the insurance is going to want to see that they've tried these two because they're going to point to the guideline and say they need to try these two before they try the PCSK9. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. And
0: so to keep in mind, this is that's the very high-risk group. So they've had ASCVD, and they've also had the risk factors. Now, notice he didn't mention age at all. So if the patient is high, very high-risk, then we don't even worry about age. We just say maximally tolerated statin and so on and so forth. Now, if they are have a history of ASCVD, but they're no longer at risk, they don't or at least have any of those risk factors, then we look at age. So 75 years of age and, and younger, we're going to go ahead and do the same exact thing that we did with the very high risk group. We're getting high intensity statin, uh, maximally tolerated at least, and then going from there as far as Zetamib an and, and all the extra stuff. If they are over 75 years, the guidelines, because of the lack of evidence there and the lack of data, um, at that point they say it's it's reasonable to initiate a moderate or a high high intensity statin. um, And then just to use um, uh, caution, you know, just kind of monitor for outcomes. And then also if the patient has been on a high intensity statin already, they turn 76. And so, you know, you can continue that high intensity statin as long as you're monitoring for adverse effects and things like that. So that's where age comes into play. Um, But if they have all those risk factors, then they're going uh, straight to high intensity.
1: Right. And I should mention that the very high risk group um, you can be considered very high risk without those, um, risk factors if you've had multiple ASCVD events. So if you've had more than one, you're considered at, at very high risk. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, and just Cole already
0: mentioned like the TNT trial, cause some of the, the, these, these recommendations came directly from those types of studies. TNT was like a tour of 80 versus 10 in secondary prevention. We have things like Sparkle that was uh, done in patients with that it had a stroke to see if it prevented secondary stroke, or a second stroke rather. And uh, we see that like in, as long as it was a ischemic stroke or a TIA, that um, it does in fact lower the risk of having another stroke later on. Hemorrhagic stroke is a little different. That's where we don't see the benefit and potential harm there. So that, that doesn't apply. But if it's ischemic, for sure, they need to be on... Uh, a statin, uh, high intensity statin. So, and there's several other studies as well, but those are just a few to give you an example.
1: Right. And um, as far as the age thing, so most of the statin benefit you're going to see with secondary prevention and primary prevention, the data has come in patients 45 to 75 or 40 to 75 years old. Um, we do have a trial looking at a statins in patients over 75, um, it's called the Prosper trial. It looked at pravastatin 40 milligrams versus placebo in primary and secondary prevention. And these patients were 70 to 82. So we have some data all the way up to 82 years old. Uh, this trial went for three years and they did see a significant reduction in their composite of coronary death, nonfatal MI, fatal or nonfatal stroke. Um, so the big concern with those elderly patients is the effect of um LDL on cognitive function they did do um, many mental state exams before and after they didn't see any effect on cognitive function in that trial Um, so at least based on that you can feel comfortable using a moderate intensity statin specifically pravastatin in patients in that age group
0: so again going, going back to the original question Who gets statin and how are we treating these patients? So the first thing you should ask yourself when you're assessing a patient, do they fall into that that group one? Have they had uh, some sort of an ASCVD event? If not, move on to group two, which is severe hypercholesterolemia. So the guidelines define that as an LDL of 190 or higher. So that's for anybody. The, for anybody, yeah. And that's uh, basically patients 20 to 75 years old. Um, if that's the case, then we really want them to have a maximally tolerated statin. And if. Uh, y- you know, the patient really needs to have at least a 50% reduction if their LDL is 190 or higher. And so high intensity is what we would like to do. Um, if they can't tolerate that, then we, whatever they can tolerate would be great. Um, now the goal for the L- actual LDL is a little different. And so if they've had a SCVD and it's primary or secondary prevention, and we want less than 70, like Cole was saying, if it's, Uh, if they're in group two and it's just a matter of they haven't had an event but they have a really high LDL we wanted a goal LDL of 100 so that's where that gets a little bit different um, so same kind of concept, though. We start with a high-intensity statin or whatever they can tolerate. If they're not at 100 um, for their
1: LDL goal, then then we add on ezetimibe, and we kind of go from there. So similar addition to the secondary prevention. And this is sometimes called primary severe hypercholesterolemia because this is patients who don't have clinical ASCVD. They just have high high lipids, high LDL. Um Also, we'll talk about the ASCVD risk score in a second. You don't have to calculate that for these patients. If their LDL is over 190, boom, they're automatically going to fall into this category. The guideline also mentions another um, class of medication that we haven't mentioned yet, which uh, definitely is not favorable, but I'll mention it for the sake of thoroughness, um, bile acid sequestrants. So if they're still not achieving the goal of less than 100 milligrams per deciliter, Um, and their triglycerides are less than 300, they recommend using a bile acid sequestrant if they're already on azetamibin statin therapy. And that's in this patient group, right? That's in this specific patient group. Don't know how I feel about that, but I'll just tell you about bile acid sequestrants so (laughs) you know. Um, If the name doesn't sound gross enough, they have a lot of side effects um, associated with the GI system, as you could imagine. Um, But they bind bile acid in the GI tract, increase accretion of bile acid in the stool, and by doing that, the liver has to create more bile acids so they actually convert cholesterol into bile acids to replace the bile acids that were lost and that reduces the amount of cholesterol in the blood interesting mechanism of action not very pleasant um, drugs would include cholesteramine cholestepol cholesterol, Um they're not new drugs they've been around for a while they've got pretty wimpy ldl lowering probably 10 to 15 percent is probably the best you could expect from those um, Uh, Side effects would include constipation, abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, weight loss, gallstones. They interact with multiple medications, warfarin, Synthroid, Digoxin, and they affect fat-soluble vitamins as well. Um, So hopefully you can get them there with the statin and the azetamib options in this patient population. But just so you know, the guideline mentions that. Um, Alternatively, they do say in patients 30 to 75 who still have LDL greater than 100, they're on statin and ezetimibe, you could consider PCSK9. So I'm probably popping that in there before I'm considering the bile acid sequestrants. All right, so
0: moving on the list, you're looking at your patient, they don't have ASCVD, do you look at their LDL level, it is 188, and you're like, oh, good, they don't have hypercholesterolemia. Do they have diabetes? That's the next group. So patients that have diabetes um, is is our group three. Um, So patients who are 40 to 75 years old that have diabetes, regardless of whatever their estimated 10-year ASCVD risk score is, and again, we'll talk about that in a little bit about the calculator and all that, they recommend moderate intensity statin. Uh, and so moderate intensity, and if you want to be as evidence-based as possible, a Torva 10 is where you see the benefit there. So there's a study called CARDS that basically proved that in patients, even though they haven't had an event, if they have diabetes in that age range, you give them a Torva 10, you lower the risk of having a cardiovascular event down the road. Um, if a patient... Uh, it basically has um, is 40 to 75 years old has diabetes um, and their LDL is 70 to 189 Um, then you can kind of assess their um, ten-year risk of um, having a a, one of those events um, using the the ASCVD risk calculator and um, kind of assessing of whether or not they need to be given high intensity statin um, versus a lower intensity statin and kind of where you need to go with therapy but regardless, 40 to 75, if they have diabetes, we're at least giving them moderate intensity um, and then possibly considering higher intensity statin as well.
1: Yeah, And just to give you a little information about the ASCVD risk calculator, if you haven't seen it before, great tool. It's put out by the ACC, American College of Cardiology. So it estimates a patient's risk of having a, their first ASCVD event over the next 10 years. Um, it's only useful in primary prevention. If a patient has had an ASCVD event, it's not accurate to tell you when they're going to have another one. Um, it's only for patients 20 to 79 years old, so there is an age limit. It considers risk factors such as gender, race, blood pressure, uh, cholesterol, uh, whether they have diabetes or not, if they smoke, and also if they're on treatment uh, for certain conditions like hypertension or if they're already on a statin or aspirin, so this can be a positive thing because you can plug it in and maybe their ASCVD risk is high, so it guides therapy. But you can also use it as a motivational interviewing tool to say, "Hey, look, I took the um, smoking variable out of here, and your risk increased this, or decreased this much, or we added on the statin therapy, and your risk decreased this much, or you know, you started smoking again, and your risk increases this much." Um, and it's just one way to one tool that you can use to to motivate them to start. You know, initiate a statin, or you know, encourage lifestyle therapy or, or whatnot. So,
0: again, if uh, if a patient has diabetes, and uh, especially if they're the risk calculator, so if you do decide to calculate the risk score, and it seems to be higher than you would like, um, and then there's a, another kind of set of risk enhancers that they have, um, specifically for patients with diabetes. Um, and this is where you get into the realm of, okay, what about patients that are younger than the 40 years old? Like, so they have diabetes, um, you know, maybe their risk calculator is high. Maybe it's not. Um, we know 40 to 75, we're giving a moderate intensity. Um, if they are at higher risk, we might be moving and doing a higher intensity statin as well. Um, and then if the patient has, um, multiple ASCVD risk factors, um, then we also, again, would kind of go to a high-intensity statin. But what about patients that are younger than that 40 years old, so 20 to 39? Um, and they they kind of recommend looking at very specific diabetes risk enhancer um, or diabetes-specific risk enhancers, rather. Um, so some of the ones that they list is uh Patients having type 2 diabetes for 10 years or more, um, patients having type 1 diabetes for 20 years or more, a patient that has albuminuria uh, greater than or equal to 30 micrograms, um, an EGFR of less than 60, um, a history of retinopathy or neuropathy or an ABI less than 0.9. Um, So any of those type of diabetes-specific risk enhancers, then we are definitely going to consider statin therapy in the patients that are age 20 to 39 as well as the the older patients um, in there. And then patients who are older than 75, then we're just kind of, again, assessing the whole patient to see if it's going to be worth the risk potentially, and then it's definitely reasonable to at least continue statin therapy if they've
1: been on it. Right. Maybe at moderate intensity if, if they were already on that, yeah. All
0: right, so statin groups, we got ASCVD. We have our um, hypercholesterolemia, and we have our diabetes. Yep. If none of those three apply to your patient, we move on to group four, which is true like primary prevention management.
1: Yep. which is the hardest thing to get good outcome data in, Mm. is primary prevention.
0: But we have some data. And kind of like Cole said, he already explained to you the SCVD risk calculator, Uh, and if you're downloading the app it's the ASCVD risk estimator plus is the newest one Mm. newest version of that sounds cool um and that's where basically they just added in like the statin and aspirin therapy and things like that um but the uh that's where the tool really comes into play is that is in this group right here because it's going to completely dictate where we go with with statin therapy or if we're going to use statin therapy
1: and and whether or not you use is definitely a little more convoluted as far as clinical decision making um because they just don't clearly fit into a box like, yes, you need a statin. You, there has to be other things, um, other factors present like smoking, high blood pressure, what their A1C is, and their ASCVD risk, that sort of thing. So a little more clinical decision-making going into primary prevention. Yeah,
0: And again, you have to assess whether or not they fall into one of those three groups first. So yeah. you always assess that. So if you have a patient who's 20 years old and their LDL is over 200, then they're automatically going into that second group so you're not even you're not even looking at the table that they use for group 4 the primary prevention you're just automatically going to that so make sure they don't fall into one of those three groups first that's kind of the hierarchy if not then we go here to the fourth group primary prevention and really the main one we'll focus on is the 40 to 75 year olds so 40 to 75 year olds who don't fit into those other three categories you're going to be assessing their ASCVD risk and there's four different Groups that they use uh, as far as their risk category. So if their ASCVD risk is less than five, percent um, they're considered low risk and you're just having a, a nice discussion with them about optimizing lifestyle man you know changes and healthy eating and exercising yeah, just you know, nice all pleasant discussion nice pleasant discussion you guys nobody's upset about being on medicine everybody's,
1: everybody's happy, happy. yep <laughs> i would be unhappy because i have to change my diet now to start exercising. that's true no more pizza
0: rolls yeah so um the next group is five to less than seven so five percent up to less than just under 7.5 percent is considered borderline risk Um, And that's, again, where they don't have as good of evidence in that particular patient risk category. But they do say that you want to assess any kind of risk enhancers, Um, you want to have a discussion with the patient and you could, it's reasonable to at least consider moderate intensity statin at this point, we just don't have great data to kind of back that up um it's it's something that's a discussion to have with the patient
1: yeah and that that, yeah that's a situation where if i had a patient who was hesitant or who was giving me pushback i wouldn't feel strongly like you need to be on a statin kind of thing yeah
0: so 7.5 percent up to just under 20 percent is going to be intermediate risk Um, and that's where you're going to have a risk discussion because you do want to always explain the why behind things like adding new medications to the regimen but Obviously, the risk is going to be much more of a factor here, and then we want to at least, if we can, initiate a moderate intensity statin um, because we want to get an LDL lowering of thirty percent up to you know forty nine percent or so, so right at the moderate intensity category. If they are greater than or or twenty percent or greater, then they're considered high risk. Boom, high intensity statin. You want to at least lower the LDL by 50% or more and go from there. Yeah.
1: You said boom, you just threw the bottle at them. You gotta have the statin. Like take this a tour of 80. No You're questions about it. So back to that 7.5 to 20% intermediate risk category. So the risk enhancers that they consider in this situation um, would be like a family history of premature ASCVD. Um, if their cholesterol is persistently elevated, so they say above 160. Um, So you would presume that that was above 160, but less than 190, because if they're above 190, they fall into that hypercholesterolemia group, Um, CKD metabolic syndrome, um, uh, conditions like if they have a history of preeclampsia or premature menopause that puts them at higher risk, Um, certain inflammatory diseases, which we've done a couple of podcasts on recently about these, but um, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, HIV, um, South Asian ancestry. Uh, if we're looking at ethnicity, and then also lipid biomarkers. Um, so if they have persistently elevated triglycerides. So if their triglycerides are consistently over 175, that would be a risk enhancer. Um, and that would kind of, you'd include that in your um, risk assessment and your conversation with the patient as to whether you're going to initiate a statin or not. And like, like I said before, if you're initiating a moderate intensity, I tend to like a atorvastatin and rosuvastatin because you can bump them up to high intensity if needed. Um, later on down the road as opposed to switching them to a different medication. And they're both generic now and relatively affordable.
0: All right. So the other thing that the guidelines do mention as well, um, what if you have a patient who maybe is in that intermediate risk, but they seem to be very reluctant to initiate statin therapy. Uh, maybe they're, they've are they had adverse effects in the past and they're worried about having to restart that therapy because they don't want to experience that again. Um, maybe they're you know, I'm a little bit older, so, um, 55 to 80, um, not that we're saying 55 is old by any means, so (laughs) don't get offended. Sorry. Um, I'm just quoting the guidelines, but they say 55 to 80, um, and then they're otherwise low risk. So everything else is being managed well and they're in their, as far as their healthcare. So, um, you know, maybe they're borderline, like they're right on that edge of 7.5. Um, we can do something, um, called the uh, patient's CAC score which um, is coronary artery calcium and it's something that's a little bit harder to actually you know that's a procedure that you actually get the the measurement but it's something uh, yeah exactly and um, that's something that if the CAC score comes back as zero then you probably aren't gonna get much benefit out of a statin and so um, you can you, you may not have to if the patient's reluctant, you may not have to push that. Now, if the CAC score comes back one up to ninety-nine, um, it definitely favors a statin, especially if the patient's over fifty-five years of age. And then, if the CAC score is a hundred or more, then uh, you, you definitely need to initiate a statin. Um, you know, obviously, unless the patient just absolutely refuses, but it, it shows that the patient definitely has a higher risk than someone who with the Think compared to a lower CAC score. So it's just another way of evaluating that particular patient to see if the guidelines fit for that
1: person. Because right. we don't want
0: to just throw algorithms at people. We obviously want to.
1: And you can incorporate it into your risk assessment discussion, like maybe a patient's hesitant. They want a little bit of extra confirmation. So, I mean, what what it's doing is calcium is associated with plaque buildup in the arteries. Um, so calcium can be used as evidence that you have coronary artery disease. So it's using a CT scan to measure the amount of calcium buildup on the walls of the arteries. And you can say, hey, you've got this extra calcium. You've got this buildup. This is probably indicative of coronary artery disease. Plus you have these other risk factors that are making your risk score this percentage. It's probably gonna be good to have you on a statin. Maybe you have a patient who has stopped statin therapy because of side effects, but you're looking to reinitiate This can be kind of confirming Um, or the other way around. You're not really sure they're right on the borderline and you want to feel comfortable with your decision not to put them on a statin and they pop a zero on the, on this on the CAC score. Yeah. I feel comfortable not starting them on one and it does range from zero to 400. Um, I wouldn't want to be at 400. Yeah. No, it's not really where you want to be. No. So just to kind of, uh,
0: to touch on a couple of other things at the end, you know, towards the end here. So those four statin groups are what we need to be kind of putting our patients in in those one of those four groups if possible. Um, pretty much any patient's going to be able to fit into in one of those groups. Uh, and again, I know I mentioned 40 to 75-year-olds. To if they're younger than that, um, then usually we're kind of pushing lifestyle um, risk assessment and lifestyle management, but um, we're, we're assessing ASCVD risk and things. So there may be cases where we put a younger patient on a statin, but... Um, it's usually going to be if they have uh, LDL at least above 160 you know they still fall in this category then we're going to go from there Um, or if it's a really young person like you know a small child up to 19 years of age if they have um, a diagnosis of familial hypercholesterolemia that's different then we're going to put them on a statin early but for just straight primary prevention 40 to 75 is where um, the sweet spot is as far as all that data with the ASCVD risk calculator comes into play yeah Um, so, what about fibrates? That's the one we didn't mention really at all. And so, if you're sitting at home going, wait a minute, I see phenofibrate,
1: yeah. then you can um, know that the guideline did not favor those very well <laughs> yeah. because they literally don't mention them.
0: Especially not gemfibrozil. Yeah. Um, so, one of the issues is if you, just to give you one example, but um, when you think of like the Accord lipid trial where the patients were on statins and they added a fibrate um, to that, that statin therapy, they didn't see an additional benefit as far as risk reduction um, for events. So, in, in that case, as far as like primary prevention or patients with diabetes, um, we don't really see much benefit there when we're dealing with just um, cardiovascular outcomes. Now, if the triglycerides are above 500 and their ASCVD risk is in that intermediate risk or higher, um, once they're on a statin therapy, you could consider a, um, a fibrate at that point is where the guidelines do kind of mention it. Uh, but there's a few other, um, I think in better options out there. And usually it's because we haven't optimized the statin to begin with. Um, or they're, they're maybe their blood sugar is completely out of control if they're, if they do have diabetes. So there's all other factors that can raise your triglycerides, but maybe considering if, if it starts getting 500, even a thousand, maybe considering that just to prevent the risk or at least lower the risk of like pancreatitis or something like that. Yeah. Um, but Speaking of triglycerides, there is some new evidence with a, I shouldn't even say new at this point, but maybe new to you. Um, It's actually from, it was published in 2019, um, but it does address some of these issues with patients that have statin, they're on statin therapy, but their triglycerides are maybe still elevated. So the study itself was called Reduce It, and they looked at patients again who were already on statin therapy, uh, and then their triglycerides were still 135 up to 499, and the study was looking at adding specifically the um, which is a very like purified um, form of, of omega 3 fish oil so the the treatment for it is icosapenethyl, ethyl um, and that was compared to placebo um, the the primary composite outcome was just various cardiovascular events so cv death non fatal nonfatal non fatal stroke uh, coronary re- revascularization or unstable angina um, Long story short, the number needed to treat at the at the end of the study was 21 patients. So for 21 patients, um, or, or for every 21 patients that we give uh, vasipa on top of their statin, you know, who fit that criteria, we prevent one of those
1: events from happening. And this is important because um, fish oil has tried and failed for quite some time. Yes, and finally they they got their due. But it's not all fish oil, right. you know. There's a lot of people who will quote specific brands of regular fish oil Uh, but this is specifically that icosapent um, ethyl formulation and this is this kind of came on the heels of another trial that was done a few years before called the jealous trial j-e-l-i-s which looked at a different formulation um, epa which you've probably heard of but it's icosapentoic acid Um, and it had somewhat promising results there was a reduction in cardiovascular events with 1.8 grams of that per day Um, but it was kind of a wimpy Trial open label design, no placebo control, um, but it, it kind of pointed to the fact that maybe there is some good data we could find with a fish oil formulation, and it seems like Vesept is it. So it's only brand name right now, um, but yeah, definitely, definitely an option to be able to add on a statin in those specific patients.
0: All right, so because just, just to be thorough, um, we'll mention briefly the, uh, the 2020 uh, ACE guidelines. So um, these are the other you know major set of, of dyslipidemia guidelines, if you will. Um, and there's fairly similar in some areas, but um, a little bit different in others. So as far as their their risk categories and treatment goals, um, patients that are at very high risk is what they refer to it as, that's kind of the same patients like we had talked about with the other guidelines where they have established ASCVD um, event or, you know, they've had some kind of ACS, um, you know, something like that, carotid or peripheral vascular disease, um, or even a, a 10-year risk um, of the with the calculator of greater than 20. So they kind of combined some of those groups together. But if a patient meets the criteria for um, a very high risk, then they want those patients' LDL goal of less than 70 so kind of similar there, except instead of the, the, the groups that they have, you know, kind of breaking all these apart, they just kind of lump everybody into those same risks and give multiple criteria that you can do to, to reach that. They also have an extreme risk group. Extreme. Extreme risk, and that's literally the word they use, which is kind of funny.
1: They, re- they said low, moderate, high, very high, and then they had to sit around in a circle for a while and think, what should we put after very high? Extreme. <laughs> extreme. It's super
0: Extreme. So that's where patients have progressive ASCVD, including unstable angina, um, established um, clinical ASCVD, plus they have diabetes or at least stage three CKD, um, or if they have heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia as well, um, or a history of premature ASCVD. So if they had their first event, um, less than 55 years of age for males or less than 65 years of age for females, then they're at that extreme risk for having another event and their LDL goal would be less than 55. So that comes directly from some of the PCSK9 data that we saw where we lowered the LDL pretty significantly. Um, and so th- they do have a lower LDL goal for that particular group. So that's where it's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, the thing that I don't like as much about that, the, these guidelines is, and again, this is just my opinion. So if you like them, that, that's cool. Just that's my opinion is, you know, they start off the same way where we're giving um, lifestyle management plus um, a certain intensity of a statin. So, everybody's getting statin therapy first line, who can tolerate it? The problem is, though, if they're not at that LDL goal for their second line therapy, they don't really give any guidance so for example they're extreme risk um, the high intensity statin plus lifestyle need second option if they're still not at, you know less than 55 then they just say you can add either a PCSK9 you can add a zetamime you can add a bioluster a bile acid sequestrant, you can add uh, bempedoic acid huh spoiler mm. alert we haven't talked about that one yet um, and then you know they kind of just list multiple agents so yeah, they don't specifically kind of list in order, so they didn't really get into the cost of the PCSK9s, and they kind of just say whatever you want. So, you know, depending on your thought process there, it may that may be better or not. It just kind of depends on your preference and but, as far as
1: the goal it's not an unreasonable thing to consider yeah, you no. know if we're if we're not seeing increased side effects could we have you know better outcomes with lower LDLs? it's reasonable need more data to assess the difference between less than 55 and less than 70 right so how much additional benefit are you going to get from that with having to add on maybe another two agents to get you there and one of them being maybe a acid sequestrant um what what difference are you going to get from that those 15 extra points of ldl we don't know we don't know but it's interesting definitely so uh, just to give you a brief overview of the new drug we
0: mentioned the bembidoic acid um nexlatol is the brand name uh, this is a completely new class of, of medication so it's basically an inhibitor of an enzyme called adenosine triphosphate citrate lyase, and it's going to um work to to help um inhibit that enzyme that's further upstream in that cholesterol synthesis process um, and so its indication is for treatment of adults with either heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia um, or established ASCVD who are on maximally tolerated statin therapy and require additional LDL lowering. Um, significant adverse effects to kind of be aware of. It can increase your uric acid levels, so be aware of that for patients who have like history of gout. Um, it can also increase the risk of tendon rupture kind of like our hmm. fluoroquinolone antibiotics. Sounds familiar. Kind of interesting. Um, and then there is some drug-drug interactions. And since we're talking about statins, we'll kind of uh, mention these two interactions because there's there's others out there. But we want to avoid concomitant use of bembedoic acid with doses of simvastatin greater than 20 milligrams or pravastatin in doses greater than 40 milligrams. So if you're on prava 80, you don't want to give bembedoic acid with that. You want to Either switch to another statin or um, lower the dose of the Prava. So those two do interact with it, and it's actually not like a sip interaction. It's it's actually um, that uh, organic anion transport polypeptide one B one. If you're one. really interested in that, it's basically a transporter system that can pull the medication into your uh, central circulation from your intestines and you know allow you to absorb the drug in the first place. So. The problem is, as of now, the recording of this podcast, we don't have any good outcome data. So there's a style that's style. There's a trial happening right now called the CLEAR outcomes trial, where they're looking at the cardiovascular outcome data um, with bambidoic acid added onto a statin, and it's expected to be finished August of 2022. So it's kind of stay tuned for that. Because it's not really soon, is it? Eh, it's not too far off. Mm. so year and some year and a few changes some, some, change. some couple months change yeah but um once that happens then we'll kind of have a better idea of where we need to include this this medication but as of now it's kind of up in the air definitely something that we know lowers ldl so could be something to consider yeah. if and the if- other ones
1: aren't Literally the newest kid on the block, so yeah. you guys are the most updated on lipids you could possibly be.
0: Unless you're listening to this after our new drugs come out, then
1: yeah. Hopefully, we made a new podcast. By okay. Then. Depending on when you're listening to this, you're the most <laughs> updated on lipids you could possibly be. Absolutely.
0: So yes, that's kind of like a, a very broad overview of the guidelines. I highly encourage you to go check out both sets of guidelines, read them in their entirety, or at least skim them in their entirety i would yeah, say i
1: mean it's long but i think we really hit the the most important points okay cool things we did a good job so i only think you, you need to read it now <laughs> I, I think you can read it
0: <laughs> but no it's it's important to kind of have that that sort of thought process down as far as working through those different statin groups or at least considering the different risk factors to assess where you want to push them as you know their ldl so um definitely kind of be familiar with that, and we'll have some practice questions when you uh, take the exam to hopefully get credit for this. Good luck on those, by the way. Um, But, Cole, did we miss anything? Is there anything else we need to make sure we cover? Is that good for a quick summary?
1: Yeah, I think we hit it all. I think we did more in a summary. I think that was good. All right. I like Cole's comment. Cole's very positive about this yeah, podcast. I'm positive today. I'm trying not to
0: oversell it because, you know, whatever. But <laughs> anything else for this at all? That's no. all I got, ma'am. All right, well, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I hope you like this style of continuing education. Uh, we were really excited about partnering up with um, Free CE, and it's something that uh, I I know for me personally I have a hard time paying attention to like a lecture style um, which you know if you if you do enjoy those they have a whole ton of content on you know whether it's monograph style or live um, lectures that you can listen to or, or pre-recorded lectures you can listen to and they're they're fantastic but if you're like me and you have the attention span of like a six year old then it's definitely something that uh, maybe this is a little bit more your speed so we're, we're hoping you enjoy it um, if you have any feedback for us for sure like let us know um, you know like what we we can do better, how we can improve it. Um, if you do want to actually obtain credit for this, you need to follow the link that's in the show notes that will take you back to freece.com uh, where you take the exam and uh, you'll get credit upon passing said exam. Um, if you're not a member of FreeCE, which if you're not, you should probably consider being a member because it's pretty awesome. Cole and I both have been members for quite a while. That's how we get all of our seat credit. And they didn't know that either before we, they approached us. So we're not just selling them because we happen to be customers, but they have good content. And, uh, it's something that, you know, definitely, uh, it, the membership lasts for a whole year if you buy the unlimited. Um, and for right now for just you guys or anybody else who you give this code to, <laughs> if you use the code coreconrx, so that's C O R C-O-N-R-X. You get 15% off the membership fee. Um, the code does expire June 30th, so make sure you get access to that. But that will give you access for the whole year. So even if you've already done your continuing ed, go ahead and get it now with the discount. That way, one, you can uh, show freece.com that you like to support us and you're going to be active members of the community. Um, uh, or um, you can at least save it to when you need the credit. And hopefully we'll have some more episodes built up by then and um, you can get credit when you need it. Um, but make sure you follow the link in the uh, show notes to actually take the exam. Cause that's important. If you don't take the exam, you're not going to get credit for this. Um, because we don't have magical powers like that. You have to show that you, that you learned something. Um, but yes, thank you guys so much. Make sure you check out freece.com and, uh, thank you guys. Thank you to freece.com for partnering with us. We're super excited to do this with them. It's an innovative idea, and we are always very, very ecstatic to work with innovative uh, people and companies. So thank you guys so much as well. Um, thank you guys for who have listened to us throughout the you know the years and the beginnings since we were um, just – you know, a couple episodes in and had no clue what we were doing. Now we have a bunch of episodes and we don't still working out the kinks of what we're doing, but, um, thank you guys so much for the support. It really means a lot to us. And, um, you know, if you have any feedback or anything like that, we'd love to hear it. Our emails are also in the show notes. You can reach out to us on any of the social media platforms and, uh, yeah, we'll keep going with the, uh, the content and hopefully you guys continue to, to follow and, and like, and we'll, uh, we'll see what happens in the future, but keep in touch. Thank you guys so much. Have a good night.